0: And welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update, episode number four, recorded on October 22nd, 2021. I'm Albie Messing from the Wasteman Center at the University of Wisconsin. And with me today is Dr. Amy Waldman from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Later on, we'll be joined by Dr. Florian Eichler from Massachusetts General Hospital. Today, our topic is a paper by Aichiro Amano and colleagues published in Neurology Genetics, the title of which is activation of a cryptic splice site of GFAP in a patient with adult-onset Alexander disease. This was a case report of a 76-year-old man who had a novel variant in GFAP and apparently mild symptoms, but with subsequent autopsy confirmation of the diagnosis of Alexander disease. I think the key message here for patients and families will be how mild and late-onset the symptoms can be. And for clinicians, I think it will be that, plus seeing yet another variant, this case required RNA rather than just DNA in order to properly interpret its significance. So let me briefly outline uh, the clinical history and then pose some questions for Amy. First, this individual came in because of problems with his left eye, specifically drooping of the eyelid, double vision, paralysis of some of the muscles controlling movement of the eye and a deficient pupillary light reflex, which is when your pupil gets smaller in bright light. In addition, he had mildly spastic gait with positive Babinski reflexes and increased deep tendon reflexes in all limbs, although he didn't raise any complaint about his gait, and we aren't told when these problems began. An MRI was done, which revealed an orbital mass, in other words, inside the eye socket, but outside of the eyeball, which turned out to be a schwannoma, that's a tumor arising in peripheral nerves. Unfortunately, he also had stomach cancer that had already metastasized to lymph nodes. And six months later, he died from that disease, complicated by pneumonia, rather than any of his neurologic problems. But the MRI for his eye problem actually showed signs of Alexander disease. Fortunately, an autopsy was done, and that confirmed the classic features of Alexander disease in brain and spinal cord. So Amy, this case raises a number of interesting questions, but let me start out with some basics for the non-neurologists among us. Can you just briefly explain what are Babinski reflexes and deep tendon reflexes?
1: Deep tendon reflexes are the classic reflexes where the doctor hits your knee with a hammer or your arm with a hammer and you see the leg kick. And it's an involuntary reflex. And in this case, the reflexes were brisker than expected. And that's a sign of a problem in the brain or spinal cord. For example, if you have a muscle problem or a nerve uh, problem, you may have decreased reflexes. But classically in Alexander disease, you have increased reflexes or brisk, more reflexes are more brisk than would otherwise be apparent. And that's a sign that there's a problem with the brain and spinal cord. And the Babinski sign is when the doctor actually tickles the bottom of your foot or strokes the bottom of your foot to look at the direction that the toe goes. It, it can go up or it can go down. Normal is for it to go down, for it to bend or flex. An abnormal is when it straightens up or goes up more towards your head. And that's also a sign of a problem coming from the brain or spinal cord.
0: But within the brain or spinal cord, it doesn't tell you much about where the problems are. It just says it's in brain or spinal cord.
1: That's correct. You can sometimes use the reflexes as a clue. So for example, if the arm reflexes are normal, but the legs are brisk, then you maybe think it's in the spinal cord or lower down. Um, but if they're brisk throughout, then usually um, that could be anywhere. That could be in the brain or the C spine. So sometimes it helps a little bit.
0: C spine meaning what?
1: Oh, the cervical spine, the upper part of the cervical cord.
0: Okay, so let's move on to his eye. Does the orbital mass, the schwannoma, account for all of his eye problems?
1: It actually does account for many of his eye problems. So the the pressure that that exerts on the nerve behind the eye Um, and disruption of the muscles actually then can account for the drooping of the lid, the the movement of the eyes, the vision problems. It's a little bit challenging here to know whether some of those eye problems were coming from Alexander disease, because in Alexander disease, you do have trouble moving your eyes rapidly from one target to the next. But what we know of this case, we don't uh, see some cerebellar signs and a lot of the eye problems are coming from higher up in the brain stem. So it does sound like a lot of these eye problems were actually pretty limited to that schwannoma.
0: Okay. So let's move on to his other problems with gait. So these seem to be consistent with Alexander disease, but they're very, they seem to be very late onset, although actually the age of onset is not mentioned. So it could have been much earlier. Anyway, this brings up the whole issue of how age of onset is defined in many cases. And of course, we've both used age of onset, you know, the first symptoms in our research studies, but, and sometimes that's very easy to define. Sometimes it's very hard to define. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about determining an age of onset?
1: Absolutely. And we've struggled quite a bit with this, you know, for a genetic disease, you know, the age of onset is essentially conception or birth because it's a genetic problem, but Age of onset in a genetic disease might be conception or birth, right? You're born with your genetic code. But we've actually classified age of onset in a number of different ways. What we found is that many of our patients experience symptoms way earlier than even some neurologic symptoms or when the doctors started suspecting a diagnosis. For example, adults, similar to this one, might have symptoms that were occurring in their 40s, but weren't troublesome enough and they didn't really think much of it and didn't lead to any MRI or neurology visits or things like that. We've tried to separate out age of onset in a couple of different ways. So we first try to capture the earliest symptom, which can be anything. It can be neurologic or non-neurologic because there's actually a lot of symptoms in Alexander disease, such as vomiting, that people don't think as being a neurologic problem. So we have our earliest symptom, the one that people first realized something was different. Then we classify the first neurologic symptom. So again, to capture those, the difference between vomiting, for example, and weakness. So then we will say what it was the first neurologic symptom. Then we look at the indication for imaging, right? So in this case, you know, the the patient's first neurologic symptom might've been a spastic gait, which he may or may not have even noticed, but the reason for imaging was actually the eye problem. And then we look at the time that the, the genetic disease was actually confirmed. And so we actually look at dif- four different age of onsets um, because we wanna try to understand how people are presenting. It doesn't matter if they had symptoms 10 years ago if they didn't bring them to medical attention because those patients wouldn't, for example, be eligible for a clinical trial since no one knew about their disease.
0: However, it does matter if you're trying to figure out how rapidly the disease progresses. So
1: Exactly, yeah, that's there great. You question. would
0: want to know when it, when it starts.
1: And that's why we classify this in many different ways. So we can try to capture that, that disease latency and that disease progression.
0: And then what do you make about the apparent disconnect between the MRIs, which were described as severe atrophy of the medulla, part of the brainstem and spinal cord, and his apparently mild, let's assume they were mild because he didn't complain about them, his mild symptoms. How tightly does, do MRI findings and clinical symptoms typically fit?
1: So there's actually not a lot of congruence between what we see on the MRI and what we see clinically. We try to predict, in many diseases, whether the MRI will tell us how severe a disease may be, but it actually, is actually it's actually quite challenging to predict disease outcomes from an MRI alone. We see patients that we think have a very mild-looking or appearing MRI, but for example, might end up needing a tracheostomy, which is not a benign thing where you need a breathing tube, even though the MRI for the most part, with maybe the exception of the brainstem, looks normal. In this case, I was actually a little bit surprised at the extent of atrophy or shrinkage or tissue loss in the brainstem with such mild symptoms, because it's actually a very sensitive and and important area of the brain that was affected in this individual. Uh, A lot of important fibers going out to the body and coming back up to the brain, through that very sensitive area. And lucky for him, he actually didn't have many symptoms or many symptoms that bothered him or brought him to medical attention.
0: All right, I'll mention a few things about the genetics that I thought were really interesting too. One is that the genetic variant here predicts a deletion of a single amino acid at position 207. And this prediction was only possible because of the ability to sequence RNA obtained at autopsy, rather than having to rely solely on the DNA sequence. The messenger RNA sequence showed a deletion of three nucleotides, presumably due to an alteration of splicing. Previously, that particular amino acid, which is normally a glutamate, has been reported as changed in three different ways in Alexander disease. So in all cases, the prediction is that there's protein being made, but it's, it's got either single amino acid changes a small deletion or a large deletion. And what is remarkable to me, uh, it's not really a new message, but it's just uh, sort of reaffirming uh, something we've known for a while is how many different ways the GFAP protein can be changed and still lead to Alexander disease. Uh, I think the paper talks a bit about how this deletion of uh, the amino acid at 207 uh, causes mild disease. Disease in contrast to uh, when the amino acid is just changed. But actually, I think there are just too few patients to make firm conclu- conclusions uh, about uh, predictions for the future. We'll just have to wait and see until we identify more patients with um, with these kinds of changes. So, what do you think are the main take home messages for patients and families from this report?
1: Well, one take home message for families, people can have more than one disease, but I would urge families to inform their doctors about all of their symptoms, whether they feel they're related to a body part or not. For example, many patients with Alexander disease don't talk to me about their constipation or bladder problems, but these are often due to problems in the portion of the brain called the brain stem that does control these parts of the body. So sometimes in an office visit, there's limited time. And when people go to see a doctor, any doctor, they don't think to mention all of the symptoms that are bothering them. So I would recommend that you bring a concise list of symptoms affecting each body part, such as your eyes, your brain, your heart, your stomach, show it to your doctor, let the doctor figure out what is relevant for that visit and what is not.
0: And what would you say are the main take-home messages for clinicians?
1: So same idea, people can have more than one disease, but it's imperative that we make a diagnosis based on all of the available data, starting with the clinical symptoms. Too often we try to make a diagnosis based on just the MRI or just the genetics. And in this case, these astute clinicians were diligent in recognizing the subtle symptoms that were consistent with the diagnosis, including the MRI and genetic report um, in Alexander disease.
0: All right, now for some email. You can send your questions to A-X-D-R-U podcast at Waisman, that's W-A-I-S-M-A-N dot W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. And we'll we'll try our best to address them in a future podcast. Let me welcome Florian Eichler from Massachusetts General Hospital. Florian, since this is your first time on the podcast, can you say a bit about your background and current position?
2: Sure. Uh, glad to be here, uh, LB, I'm a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm director of the Center for Rare Neurological Diseases and uh, see mostly leukodystrophy patients, but also other neurogenetic conditions and uh, the kind of translational work that we're going to be talking about. It's close to my heart.
0: Okay. So, Before we get to the questions, uh, let me go back to one that was raised a couple of podcasts ago when someone asked how many patients in the world there were with Alexander disease. And I had made an offhand guess about the world population being around 6 billion. That was honestly just a wild guess. I've since checked uh, the numbers and according to www.census.gov, as of September 23rd, there were 7.8 billion people in the world. Uh, Now, if you accept as a very, very rough estimate for prevalence of Alexander disease as being one in a million, then that would mean there could be 7,800 worldwide. If you accept the one in 2.7 million number that came out of the Japan study in 2011, it would mean that there were a little, little under 3000 worldwide. So again, th- these are very crude estimates, but um, I didn't leave, want to leave my uh, estimate of world population out there uh, when it was so far off. Now, let me turn to today's question. Teresa writes about her son, who is now a young adult. Could the medication ion-373 reverse or ameliorate his condition? Now, none of us would be involved with this clinical trial without thinking that it has a reasonable chance of um, providing some benefit, but what exactly that benefit will be, we just don't know. And while we can't go into any details about the ongoing clinical trial, um, what I can do is talk about the animal data that has led up to it. first the mouse studies that were published in 2018 and a newer rat study that uh, is about to be published next month. And in both of these cases, we looked at uh, the effects of treating the animals at what I would call a pre-symptomatic stage. They were three weeks old and then examining them about two months later. And I'll, uh, I'll mention that even though they were uh, pre-symptomatic, they showed no outward signs of disease at three weeks. Clearly, there were lots of things going on in their brain and spinal cord at at that point. So the disease process was underway. It just wasn't severe enough to cause uh, clinical problems. Uh, And if you treat the animals at three weeks of age and look two months later, they are basically indistinguishable from their, their normal counterparts. Uh, So that's encouraging, but what is even more important in both the mouse and now the rat is that if you wait and treat them when they're eight weeks old, and this is a point where um, the pathology is uh, well underway in the mouse, although the mice don't really show much in the way of clinical problems. um, And in the rat, they are much more severely affected uh, and they have motor deficits. And, and several other kinds of problems. Um, if you wait and begin the treatment, or it's, if you wait and give them their single treatment at eight weeks of age, it can reverse many of these problems. In some cases, it's reversing them all the way back to a normal rat. In other cases, they are getting much better Not all the way back to normal, but still much better. And we've only taken that out to uh, about 10 or 12 weeks post treatment. So, from the animal data, at least, you would say the answer is that it can reverse um, some aspects of the disease. So, that's the good news. Um, Here's why I want to place limitations on that. There are many ways in which these animal models are good models of Alexander disease, but we have to be honest in saying that they are not nearly as severely affected as most human patients with Alexander disease. And in the case of the rat, it's the first model that has any uh, detectable abnormality of white matter. That's a big deal. So it has a myelin deficit, but it's, it's pretty subtle compared to what you see in many patients. And so I we'd be hesitant to say that that we can directly translate the reversibility of the problems in the mouse and the rat to what will happen in human. That's why we're doing the clinical trial to find out first, whether it's safe, and second, what benefits there will be. So let me now turn it over to Amy and Florian and ask how you've how you view uh, trajectories of disease course and use that information in thinking about clinical trials.
1: Well, as you mentioned, clinical trials are, are designed to really understand two things. Some are focused mostly on safety, some are focused on safety and efficacy. And this particular trial is looking at safety and efficacy in a very broad population of Alexander disease. You spoke about the rarity of this disease. um, And so designing a trial like you're able to do in animals where you could treat at a very young age or at disease onset um, is a wonderful idea and a goal for all human disease, right? We wanna treat it as soon as the disease is diagnosed and we wanna make a diagnosis early. But in terms of the, the practical implications of that, Um, Ionis actually designed a very broad clinical trial with with patients of many different ages. Now, we spoke earlier uh, in this podcast about the difficulty with age of onset, and do we consider an older adult having decades of age of onset, or, or is it more proximal to where their symptoms begin? In a genetic condition, how do you know some of that? So... In, in this case, we have to remember that the drug is be given being given at random times within the disease, um, and not necessarily for everyone at the onset of their neurologic symptoms.
2: Yes, I I, um, I agree with um, Amy here that time uh, is is an essential factor. Um, We are extremely excited to see this kind of work go from mouse uh, to rat to human, and knowing that this is a targeted treatment that goes to the root cause of the human condition is huge. The fact that this is the first treatment that directly targets mutations in GFAP, that directly targets the disease-causing gene and its protein, um, is a milestone in the field of Alexander's disease. As such, our expectations are high, and our hopes are high. Um, but we also, at the same time, have to remember many of the things that um, uh, Dr. Waldman um, mentioned regarding duration of disease in humans, which is not on the order of weeks, uh, as in uh, mice and rats, but more in the order of uh, months and years, and also scale, the fact that our nervous system is so much larger. Can we achieve the same kind of distribution um, of, uh, of this treatment as in mice and rats? And can we target cells that are not so far gone that we could still rescue function? And that is the big unknown. Um, I think the fact that we could target GFAP and show that uh, this um, important disease target is modified is a huge step. And the hope would be that we can then, um, at the very first at its very first step, stop the progression of this progressive uh, disorder, right? So can we stabilize the disease? Can we turn it from this progressive disorder that is constantly challenging uh, families and patients because symptoms are changing and um, we have to adapt and are always lagging behind in our clinical treatment to something that is stable, manageable, that we know um, how to provide ongoing sustainable care for? Is it possible that things are reversible as in mice and and rats? We would certainly hope so, but we think it will only happen with appropriate supportive care and management over time. In neurology, we often say, if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, So we need to provide the proper stimulation, the proper environmental cues for the nervous system to recover, to grow, to adapt, And all of those things are not an easy task, uh, given years of uh, pathology that have already occurred.
1: Well, we are also studying disease trajectories. I know, uh, Dr. Messing, that was one of your questions about understanding change over time. How do you measure change over time is an incredibly difficult task. One that this patient community has been committed to helping us understand um, with Uh, going not only to their local doctors, but sometimes coming to CHOP or coming to our GLIA CTN partners, the GLIA Clinical Trials Network partners, to see a neurologist with with expertise in Alexander disease that can really help us understand how does the disease change as Dr. Eichler said, year to year, not necessarily even week to week, and what changes are we seeing over time? And then you consider those changes that we see, whether it's in the motor system or whether it's in the speech and language or cognitive aspects, um, and then you try to translate those into a a clinical trial. So we've taken the data that has been collected over the last several years. We've been collaborating with IONIS um, and trying to develop these outcome measures so that we can measure real change and to see whether the patient gets better.
2: What should patients expect? And I think the expectation again is that this can be done safely. And you know, with our joint efforts across different centers that have expertise and a lot of staff, we are we are learning and and doing this in a way that's you know appears safe. And we expect based on the wonderful science behind this, that we are lower um, GFAP levels. Um, but what we do not know, and I will just be open about this, is how this is affecting clinical symptoms at different stages of disease. And I think that's a fair statement.
0: That's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Amy and Florian for joining me today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters, Zoe and Rebecca, and from Clark Kellogg at the UW's Wasteman Center. And thanks to our donors for these podcasts, the Barrett Riddle family. I'm Albie Messing. See you next time.